Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This morning we'll be reading Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, through chapter 13, through uh, verse 18. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, through chapter 13, verse 18. As I mentioned last week, Genesis 12 through 25 make up the Abrahamic uh, section of the book of Genesis. And so last time we were together, we were introduced to the patriarch Abram, who will become Abraham. And today we are picking up in this Abrahamic section of this first book of the Bible. Well, please... Pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, my, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen, herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot has separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Well, last week I mentioned that we should think of Abram or Abraham as our father. We should think of him as the paradigm for the new covenant Christian. Abraham is very relevant to us and our Christian lives. Whenever the New Testament is wanting to draw areas of discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it points to Moses and Israel's time in the promised land. But whenever the New Testament is wanting to show areas of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it points to our forefather, Abraham. Boys and girls, just as you learn how to behave and live and think largely through your parents and their influence, so, too, in a very similar way, we learn what it means to be a Christian through considering our forefather, Abraham. He's relevant to us. Indeed, last week, we considered how we are called into a life of discipleship as Abram was called into a life of discipleship. And as a disciple of the Lord, we are sustained by the promises of God just as Abram was sustained by the promises of God as he made his pilgrimage from Ur to the land of Canaan. Now, what makes it difficult to be fed upon the promise of God, what, what, what's, what's difficult about being sustained by the promises of God, both for Abram and for us, is that oftentimes we live in a place of tension. Tension between what we see with our eyes in our circumstances and what we hear with our ears in God's word. We live in a place of tension between what we see with our eyes in our circumstances and what we hear with our ears in God's word. For honest with ourselves, oftentimes our circumstances seem to testify against God's promises. And so every external circumstance that we face in this life, whether it be prosperity or adversity, 
Every external circumstance of life is a trial. It's a temptation, tempting us to live by the eye and not the ear. Tempting us to look at our circumstances as being more important, as trumping the promises of God that we hear with our ears in the word of God. And so in this passage, we witness Abram struggling with this tension, struggling with this apparent contradiction between what he sees with his eyes and his circumstances and what he has heard with his ears from the mouth of God. This is the main theme point that I'd like us to focus upon as we make our way through Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. Abram is struggling, struggling with this tension between what he sees with his eyes and his circumstance, the circumstances, and what he has heard with his ears from the mouth of God. Well, as you recall from last week, Abram left his homeland. He left his kin. He left all that was familiar. And he left the land of the Chaldeans. He left the city of Ur to go to Canaan because God told him to. And in Canaan, one of the first things that Abram does is he goes to Shechem. He goes between Bethel and Ai. He goes to the Negev. These are various places in the land of Canaan. And he sets up altars and he calls upon the name of the Lord. This is evidence that Abram is feasting. He is being nourished on the promises of God. But Abram is only feeding upon the promises of God while things are, are going pretty well. Because once things get a little difficult, what does Abram do? Well, notice what we, what we hear in Genesis chapter 12. We, we hear that a famine hits the land. And what does Abram do when a famine hits the land? He goes to Egypt. Now, throughout the Old Testament, going to Egypt oftentimes is the alternative to trusting in the Lord. In the Old Testament, oftentimes going to Egypt is the alternative to trusting in the Lord. So once things started to get a little bit difficult, Abram stops feasting upon the promises of God. His trust in the Lord is challenged. We see here that Abram begins to live according to the eye. I'm sure Abram was probably thinking in, in his mind, God, how are you going to make my offspring into this great and mighty nation if you can't even sustain my daily bread? Furthermore, what's so great about this land of Canaan if it can't even sustain my crops? Abraham seems to be living according to the eye here. He's not trusting in the Lord. He's leaning upon his own understanding. He flees to Egypt. And once Abram and Sarai are, are in Egypt, we quickly learn that Abram grows scared. He's frightened. He's afraid. And why is he afraid? Well, he's afraid because he thinks once Pharaoh and the Egyptians lay eyes on his wife, the beauty of his wife, they will eradicate him as the husband. Now, this isn't an outlandish fear. King David did this. Or he did what, what Abram is fearing that Pharaoh will do. Will do. King David lay, laid his eyes upon the beauty of Bathsheba, and what, what then did he do? He killed her husband. Abram thinks that this is, this is what's going to happen to him. And so what does he do? 
Well, he tells Sarai to tell the, the Egyptians that he is just her brother and nothing else. They're just siblings. They're not married. And so this is what happens. And consequently, then, Pharaoh takes Sarai into his harem. And Abram, as the, you know, as the, as the brother, apparently, is blessed with great wealth from Pharaoh. Again, here, we witness Abram continuing to live according to the eye. He doesn't trust God's promises in the midst of fear. He seeks to take things into his own hands. He leans and trusts in his own understanding, which is why he pawns off his wife as his sister and essentially places her in Pharaoh's harem. Now, God, in response to what Pharaoh is doing here, sends great plagues upon Pharaoh. And in this sense, this this narrative very much resembles the Exodus event. But God sends plagues upon Pharaoh because of this great sin of Pharaoh. And once Pharaoh realizes what's happened and that Abram's actually the husband of, of Sarai, Pharaoh comes to Abram and says, what have you done? Why would you do such a despicable act? In this scene, Pharaoh is almost acting more virtuously than Abram. He almost has a more uh, calibrated moral compass than than Abram does. Consequently, then, Pharaoh says, take your wife and get out of our country. Pharaoh then sends Abram and Sarah out of the land of Egypt, and they go back to their homeland, or their new homeland, the land of Canaan. And so we see this first scene in chapter 12 is really evidence uh, of, of Abram living according to his eyes. He doesn't trust the Lord's promises when things get difficult. Rather, he looks at his circumstances, and his circumstances seem to cancel out God's promises. He feels like he needs to take things into his own hands. Well, Abram and Sarai, they head back to the land of Canaan, and again, in chapter 13, we hear that Abram has great wealth. Both he and Lot have great wealth. And he and his nephew then dwell in this space of land between Bethel and Ai. Again, this is in the land of Canaan. Well, very quickly, Abram realizes that this specific area of land cannot support both him and his nephew and all of their possessions and herds and and flocks. Furthermore, the herdsmen of Abram are in conflict with the herdsmen of Lot. Therefore, Abram responds to this situation, this problem, and and this conflict by telling Lot, um, you know, this land can't support us both. One of us needs to leave. And notice what Abram does. He gives Lot the first pick. He tells Lot, you know, if you go to the right hand, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go north, I'll go south. Abram here seems to be acting very virtuously. Again, Abram is the superior in this relationship with Lot. Abram had every right to tell Lot to hit the path, to hit the road. This is his land. He needs to go fend for himself far, far away. But that's not what he does. He gives Lot first pick. Here we see Abram seems to be living now according to the ear. He seems to revert course. He doesn't seem to be insecure when it comes to the promises of God, those promises relating to his offspring being numerous and his family possessing this land of Canaan. He doesn't seem to be insecure about these promises, anxiously trying to hoard this land so that his, his future family has an inheritance. 
No, he patiently is trusting the Lord and knowing the Lord will bring about these promises in his timing according to his will, which is why he's able to give Lot first pick of the land. Abram seems to be living according to the ear and not the eye. He changes direction here. Now, after Lot makes his pick and leaves, we see that God comes to Abram. And God comes to Abram and tells Abram, Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. All of this land that you see with your eyes will be yours. Furthermore, God says, Abram, look at the dust of the earth. That is how numerous your offspring will be. Indeed, Abram, if you can count the grains of dust on the ground or on the earth, so too you will be able to count your offspring. Now, Abram never in his lifetime experiences the realization of these promises. In fact, when Abram dies, the only real estate that he owns are the two burial plots for him and his wife. But yet here, Abram seems to believe, not by sight, but by the ear, believes the promises of God that the Lord will bring to fruition, whether or not he will experience it in his lifetime. Abram here in chapter 13 seems to be living according to the ear, not according to the eyes. Well, Lot seems to be doing the opposite. So when Abram gives Lot the choice, uh, the first choice of, of land, notice that that Lot he sets his eyes upon this lush land, this land that appears to be bountiful and well-watered. And we, we, we hear that this land was near Egypt, or was like Egypt, excuse me, and it was near Sodom and Gomorrah. These two details seem to indicate that Lot's choice was an unwise choice. Egypt and Sodom are, are two, um, two places in Scripture that have negative connotations. Furthermore, as Lot is making his decision, it, we don't hear that the fact that God promised Abram this land uh, for him and his family, that, that, that promise doesn't seem to factor into Lot's decision. Rather, his eye is captivated by this lush land, and that's what makes his decision. The promises of God don't seem to factor very uh, very high for Lot as he seeks to choose what land he will dwell upon. So Lot here seems to be living according to the eye. He's not living according to the ear. He's not trying to call to mind the promises that his uncle received. Rather, he's looking for what piece of real estate captures his eye. And this, this, this land that he dwells in was either at the border of the land of Canaan or it was outside the land of Canaan. Again, indicating that he, he didn't really think about those promises that God gave to his uncle about the land of Canaan being blessed. So Lot is living according to the eye, and we know that Lot will continue to live according to the eye. Here in this chapter, we learn that, that Lot dwells near the land of Sodom. In chapter 14, we will learn that Lot then lives in the city of, of uh, Sodom. And then in chapter 19, he sits in the gates of Sodom, which seems to suggest that he had a position of respect and that his daughters were pledged to be married to inhabitants of this wicked city. 
Therefore, as Lot continues to live according to the eye, he grows a closer and closer attachment to this wicked city. Because Lot lives according to the eye, he leaves the symbolic heaven, the land of Canaan, for the symbolic hell, the city of Sodom. And so in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, again, we witness this tension, this tension between our eyes and our ears. Abram experienced this tension. Even Lot experienced this tension. Well, this tension is not a tension that's unique to Abraham and Lot. It's not a distinctively Old Testament idea. In fact, the arena of the Christian life for us is this tension, this tension between what we see with our eyes and our circumstances and what we hear with our ears in the word of God. Think about the two disciples in Luke 24 after Jesus was crucified. These two disciples are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Their heads are down, they're depressed, they're discouraged, they're downtrodden. All hope is gone. Their Lord, their Savior, their Master is dead, crucified in a tomb that's sealed. It's all over. And on the road, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, while masking his identity, comes alongside these two disciples and, and asks them, why the long face? Why are you so downtrodden? And these two disciples respond by saying, are you really the only visitor in Jerusalem who has not heard what has happened? Jesus of Nazareth is dead. And we thought he was the one, the one who was going to save Israel. And how does Jesus respond? He says, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Son of Man to suffer these things and enter into his glory? What is Jesus doing here? He's indicting these disciples for living according to their eyes and not their ears. These disciples were essentially acting like Abram when he left Canaan during a time of famine to go to Egypt. These disciples were acting like Abram when he pawned off his wife to the harem of Pharaoh. These disciples were acting like Lot, who disregarded the promises of God and chose the most lush land that was near Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is indicting these disciples for living according to the eyes and not the ears. These disciples are letting their circumstances, their seemingly dire circumstances, uh, to cancel out the promises of God rather than letting the promises of God interpret their circumstances. They're letting their circumstances cancel out the promises of God rather than letting the promises of God interpret their dire circumstances. They're living according to the eye and not the ear. And so believer, God's word tells you this morning that you are justified. You are perfectly righteous. You are forgiven. God's word tells you that you have the spirit dwelling within you and thus you are being sanctified. God's word tells you that right now you've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God's word tells you that you are being changed as you put yourself under the means of grace. Now these things are true no matter how you feel. Even when you feel guilty and dirty, even when you don't feel as if you have the third member of the Trinity dwelling within you, even when you don't feel like anything's happening as you go to church each Lord's Day. These things are true even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
And thus you are at a crossroads. Are you going to live according to your ear? Or are you going to live according to your eye or your heart? Some of you might feel weak this morning. Weak because of a literal physical ailment. Some of you might feel weak because life just isn't going the way you intended it to go. Some of you may feel weak because of a big decision that you have to make or other trials and sufferings that God has placed in your life. Again, you're at a crossroads. Your eyes tell you to be anxious, to be discouraged, that all hope is gone, that you are to trust in your understanding and strength. But your ears tell you that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Your ears tell you that it's in these present weaknesses that God's power and presence will be manifested in your life. Your ears tell you that it's in these weaknesses that you will see in spectacular detail the faithfulness of God in your life. So again, will you live according to your ears or will you live according to your eyes? Abram's relevant to us. The things he struggled with, that, that, that place of tension, is the same place of tension that we find ourselves in as New Covenant Christians. Well, up until this point, all I've said to you is be like Abram. And that's important. He is our example. We are to learn from him. Now, while this is important, this is not gospel. While this is important, this does not save you. Your salvation is not found in your imitation of our forefather, Abram. Jesus Christ was the only human being who lived a perfect life according to the ear and not the eye. Jesus Christ was the only human being who lived a perfect life according to the ear and not the eye. Think about that time in the Gospels when Satan leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. And what does Satan do? He says, Jesus, take these stones and, and turn them into loaves of bread. Again, that dazzles the eye. Bread, when you haven't eaten for 40 days, captures the desire of the eye. Again, Satan leads Jesus to the pinnacle of the holy temple. and says, Jesus, throw yourself off this temple and command the angels concerning you. Demonstrate your power, son of man. Again, that would dazzle the eye. Yet again, Satan leads Jesus to a great mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you would but worship me, bow down to me, all, all of these things that you see with your eyes will be yours. Satan is tempting Jesus to live according to the eye, to do what dazzles the eye first and foremost. Satan is tempting Jesus to bypass the path of suffering and experience glory now. But what does Jesus do? With each temptation, he responds by quoting a promise of God. Jesus refuses to live according to the eye, and he resolutely lives according to the ear, according to the promises of God. 
fast forward a bit. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his death, anticipating that cross which is looming ahead of him in but a day's time. And he prays to his father and says, let this cup pass. Jesus' eyes are telling him, don't go to that cross. Don't suffer for the sins of other people. But yet his ears remind him of that intra-Trinitarian conversation that he had with his own father before the foundation of the earth, whereby he uh, promised to submit to the will of his father and his father promised to give him a redeemed people. And thus, Jesus' ears remind him to say, not my will be done, but yours. And therefore, because Jesus lived a life by the ear and not by the eye, our salvation and our righteousness before God is not dependent, it's not contingent upon our ability to live according to God's promises or his word. It's not contingent upon uh, whether or not we have had emotional experiences when reading or meditating upon the promises of God or the degree in which we treasure the promises of God. Our salvation was won through Jesus living according to the ear. Our salvation was won through Jesus living according to the ear. All too often, if we're honest with ourselves, our ears are plugged to the word of God and our eyes are captured by the fleeting pleasure of sin. That's our life. Our ears are plugged to the promises of God, promises that we know because our eyes are so dazzled by the fleeting pleasures of sin. So thanks be to God that our relationship with him is not dependent upon our performance, but the performance of his son who perfectly lived according to the year. And so, beloved, Abraham is relevant to us. He is our father. And what do we learn from Father Abram? Well, we learn that the Christian life is a life, it's a battle between the, the ear and the eye. And thus we are called, not just by the Apostle Paul, but even by Abraham, Abraham himself, we are called to walk uh, by faith and not by sight. Now this is true, except for one very important place in the Christian life, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, for, one, for, for a very brief moment, our faith becomes sight as we anticipate that great day when this tension between the eyes and the ears will be completely resolved as we behold the face of our Savior. Let's pray.